0: Job 2, 1-13 to 13. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant's job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. While he sat on the ashes Then his wife said to him Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die But he said to her You speak as one of the foolish women would speak Shall we receive good from God And shall we not receive evil In all this Job did not sin with his lips Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him They came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namatite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And while they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards the heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of God.
1: Well, I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray. So will you please stand, and we'll just pray and ask the Lord to help us as we come to his word. Father, we thank you again so, so much for the great joy to be together as your people, be it here in the auditorium or online. We thank you that we are your people, your family. We thank you that you have drawn us together to be members of the family of God. We thank you for that great joy and that great privilege that we have to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to call God our Father. And Father, we pray now that you will teach us as we talk about suffering and evil. Lord, these are deep, deep things. And for many of us, even this morning, they are things that touch us deeply today. And so we do want to hear your voice. And we do want to listen to your word. And above all, we pray that by your spirit, you may draw near to us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. When you become a Christian, and I take it that most of you here this morning or online are Christians or believers, a number of supernatural events happen. Now, you may not know the time or the day when they happened. You may not have felt anything when you became a Christian. Most of us didn't. And most of us don't know the exact day and time when we became Christians. But there was a moment in time when you became a Christian, And at that moment, a number of supernatural events occurred. Uh, The events that marked you in the sight of angels and demons as different. Events that were permanent. Events that would cause you to touch eternity. Let me, let me mention a few of those events. Number one, you are justified. Because of the death of Christ on the cross, because of his substitutionary death in your place, on your behalf, God has stated in the courts of heaven that you are justified. God will no longer hold your sins against you. Number two, you are regenerated. So the phrase that the Lord Jesus used in John chapter 3 is that you are born again. When you were justified, God placed his Holy Spirit within you. And you had new ambitions and new desires and new longings and new life. Thirdly, you are adopted. Personally, legally, you have been adopted into the family of God. You are a child of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are part of this adopted family. Number four, which gets us to our passage, is you've entered a war. You've entered a battlefield. You've identified yourself as a child of God. And now you have a brand new enemy. The Satan. The devil. And these legions of evil forces. So when you become a Christian, you may not know this. You entered a war zone. You entered a fight. It's a fight that's already been won. But it's a fight nonetheless. Have no delusions about the reality of Satan the power of Satan and the legions of evil forces at his disposal. Have no have no delusions about that. Satan is not fooling around. He's not playing toy soldiers. This is not PlayStation. In a real sense, you haven't entered a battlefield. In a real sense, you are the battlefield. Turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 6. Keep your place in Job 2. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul spells out this battle in which we're looking into in Job, but he gives us an explanation of what this battle is and what the battle was that Job found himself in. Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 11. Take it from verse 10. Have you got it there? Ephesians 6 verse 10. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice we're not strong in ourselves, we are strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I wonder what your first thought is when you wake up in the morning. Oh no, not another day. Why can't those kids sleep in? Paul tells us that every morning when we wake up, we ought to say to ourselves, this is a vicious, dark, spiritual battle being waged today. And I'm right in the middle of that battle. Well, let's go back to Job. Because the book of Job fleshes out this battle that Paul has explained here in Ephesians 6. Back to Job chapter 2. The book of Job, remember from last week, is divided into three unequal sections. Section 1 is chapters 1 and 2, which is prose. It's history. It's historical narrative. Chapter 3 is chapter 42. That's also prose, history, historical narrative. It is not myth. It is not fictional. Job was a real historical person, just as Jesus was a real historical person. Section 2, the middle portion, and Royden's going to start looking at that from next week. Section 2 is chapters 3 to chapter 42, where you have the speeches uh, right at the end of God, but before that, the speeches of Job and Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And that is poetry. So you have prose, historical narrative, prose, historical narrative, and right in the middle you have this large section of poetry. You'll remember from last week, and if you didn't listen to that, please do so sometime this week. Job is not asking armchair questions. Job is asking wheelchair questions. He is in ICU. He has been hugely, hugely wounded. His suffering is staggering. Remember in chapter 1, four messengers, almost like the four horsemen of the book of Revelation, appear to him, and they bring him agonizing news. There were two terrorist attacks, there was a lightning storm, there was a tornado. Remember, Job was a fabulously, fabulously wealthy man. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 1,000 bulls. Remember that a camel... Uh, Top-of-the-range camel will cost you 55,000 U.S. So he's worth probably two to three billion rand. And suddenly, it's gone. He's decimated. He's destroyed. He's liquidated. He's nuked. But that's not all. Remember, all his trusted servants were killed. And then the worst nightmare of any parent The worst nightmare of any parent. He gets news. All his children, the seven boys and three girls, have been killed in a freak tornado. Chapter 1, verse 19. Remember, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. It doesn't get a whole lot worse than that. But then it does. Chapter 2, which we're looking at this morning. Let me give you the quick structure of chapter 2, its literary structure. Uh, once again, if it was a play, there are four acts in the play. Act 1 is verse 1 to 6, God and Satan in heaven. Act 2 is verse 7 to 8, Satan and Job on earth. Act 3 is verse 9 to 10, Job and his wife. And act 4 is verse 11 to 13, Job and his friends. And uh, we'll be spending most of our time with God and Satan, Satan and Job, and just briefly touch on the end, Job and his wife and his friends. So let's dig in straight away. Act 1, God and Satan. The end of chapter 1, we're on earth. Chapter 2, verse 1, we're immediately transported into the heavenlies. Let me read again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, answered, answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to, dis- to destroy him without reason. Now there's no indication of time between the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, it could have been days, could have been years. Once again here, we have in chapter 2 clear evidence of the supernatural. The Bible is not in any way, it gives no apology for the supernatural. No apology whatsoever. There's a real God, there's a real Satan, there's a heavenly cabinet meeting. Remember that Job had no knowledge of that first cabinet meeting. He had no knowledge of what God and Satan were discussing up in the heavenlies. He also has no knowledge now of chapter one, uh, chapter two, verse one to six. We are the readers, and we're allowed to be flies on the wall, listening to what Satan and God are saying to each other. Again, notice verse one. Satan is a real spiritual being. He's a powerful spiritual being, but notice this is this is very important. He's a subservient spiritual being. So notice there, verse 1, As any servant presents himself to his master, so the Satan presents himself to the Lord. Very clear, they are not equal opposite powers. He is subservient to God. We know from chapter 1 that God is sovereign. God is supreme. God is king. God has no rival. God is unique. And he governs his world through supernatural forces, both good forces and evil forces, but he is always in total control of his world. Verse 3, as in chapter 1, verse 8, God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's blameless, he's upright, turns from evil, he fears God. Even though his life was devastated in chapter 1, he still refused to curse me. He still bowed down and worshipped me. So Satan, you are dead wrong. Verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So Satan says it's true that Job didn't curse you when I took away his fortune and his family. But Take away his health, and he'll curse you. So Satan's argument is the same as in chapter 1. Satan is saying, Job doesn't worship you because you're God. No, Job worships you because of what he gets out of you. That's why he worships you. It's a contract. He doesn't worship you because you are worthy. No, he worships you because he gets stuff out of you. If you take away his health, he will curse you. And then we come to that terrifying verse, which is verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. We had the same in chapter 1. Remember verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. But now it's worse. Now, my dear friends, if we are honest, we do not like the idea of God instructing Satan to attack Job. We do not like that idea at all. But that's exactly what he does. Behold, he is in your hand. And then we read verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, let me draw out three great truths from the passage thus far. Truth number one is that the Satan has real power. So the book of Job teaches us, as does the rest of the Bible, that there are real, influential, unseen spiritual powers of whom Satan is one. And he has real power. He has real power, but it is limited power. He has superhuman power. That's why we can't face him on our own. But it is sub-divine power. Principle number two, truth number two. The Lord is absolutely supreme. So the Bible gives no encouragement to the idea that God is anything else than all-powerful. Part of the tension of the book of Job is that we know that God is utterly supreme. Nothing happens in the universe without his permission, and yet there is evil. That is part of the tension in the book of Job. Truth number three, which gets us to verse six. The Lord gives terrible permissions. You can't you can't uh, airbrush that away. You can't photoshop that away. No, the Lord gives terrible permissions. It's there. Chapter 1 verse 12, chapter 2 verse 6. It shocks us and it ought to shock us. It deeply unsettles us and it ought to deeply unsettle us. You see, if I had written this story, chapter 2, verse 6, I would not have said, so if I was writing the story of Job, and I got to chapter 2, verse 6, I would not have said, behold, he is in your hand. I would not have said that. You know what I would have said? I would have said, enough is enough. This man has suffered more than any other human being. He's been taken from riches to bankruptcy, from greatness to destitution, from a happy family to a family tragedy. That's enough. He's proved his faith. His faith is genuine. This man worships me because I am God. He doesn't worship me because of what he gets out of me. So your, so your trial is finished. Get out of here! Get out! That's what I would have written. But the Lord disagrees. He says, go ahead, he's in your hand, only spare his life. That is very unsettling. You see, obviously, there's something much, much deeper here. Obviously, God is teaching Job and us something much deeper. Obviously, the destruction of sin, the destruction of death, the destruction of Satan, the glory of God goes much deeper than what we thought. Obviously, Job, who is a sketch of the gospel, who is a draft of the cross, who is a shadow of Jesus, obviously, Job must also go through his garden of Gethsemane. I think that's what we have here. In chapter 2 and chapter 3. Remember in the gospels, all the gospels, In the garden, where Jesus, being in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood. And he cries out, my God, my soul is sorrowful. My soul is troubled, even to death. And we'll hear an echo of that in just a moment. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Turn to Job chapter 3. Because I think we find Job here in the garden. and We find an echo, a pre-echo, of the cries of our Lord Jesus Christ in anguish. Have a look at Job 3 verse 1. Job starts crying out to God in agony. He enters his garden of Gethsemane. After this Job opened, verse 1, after this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Notice he doesn't curse God. He doesn't curse God anywhere. He curses the day of his death, of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. My soul is sorrowful, he cries. Verse 11. Why didn't I die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? Verse 20. Why is light given to me who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? My soul is troubled even unto death. I mean, it's remarkable words here. I would rejoice, says Job, if I saw my grave. Couldn't come sooner. Let me me just make a pastoral note here. Never, ever, ever think that faithful Christians do not suffer. That is a lie. It comes from the pit of hell and it smells of smoke. Never, never, ever, ever believe that Christians do not get depressed. That is a lie. It comes from the pit of hell and it smells of smoke. If you have ever said these words, let the day, and all of us have, perhaps today, this is where you are. Let the day perish on which I was born, let the night perish on which I was conceived. Why is light given to one in misery? I don't need light, I need darkness. I need annihilation, I need death. Why is life bitter to the soul? Why do I long for the grave? If you've said those words, you're in good company. It's interesting, throughout these 42 chapters, God never despises Job's honesty. He never despises his honest emotions. He never despises his anguish. He never despises his depression. In fact, James, the half brother of Jesus, commends Job to us. James chapter 5, verse 11. He said, Blessed are those who are steadfast. Blessed is the steadfastness of Job. Perhaps as I've been reading here from chapter 3, you say to yourself, This is actually where I am. Martin, you have no idea. Perhaps you have cried out in your desperation. Why Why was I conceived? Why was I born? Why wasn't I stillborn? Why did those knees receive me? Why did? Why did oxygen fill my lungs? I wish I was dead. Have you ever prayed the prayer I have? Lord, this is a selfish prayer, but you could take me home now. The next 30 seconds would be good. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Next 30 seconds would be good. I know it's selfish, I know it's totally selfish, but take me home now, I've had enough. I can't take it any longer. I long for the grave. If that's where you are, let me encourage you. Let me tell you what you need to do today, this afternoon or this evening. You need to switch off the music, switch off the TV, switch off the Wi-Fi, switch off social media, switch off the Internet. Read carefully Job 1 and 2. And then pray Job 3. Pray it for yourself. Job prayed this prayer to to help us, to give us words, to know how to pray. Don't think God is going to be surprised. God's not going to say, oh my goodness me, I never had any idea that this is what you felt. Of course he knows what you feel, but you need to tell him. That's what prayer is. And then read 38 to the end. If you are going through chapter 3, there's no quick fix. There's no silver bullet. You've got to do some work. Read through chapter 1 and 2. Pray through chapter 3. And then slowly read 38 to the end. That's what you do. Let me make three comments back to Job 2. I've made a lot of comments, three more. And then his wife, and then his friends. But don't worry, we'll get there. Comment number one. Imagine that you are in someone's property, and suddenly you're surrounded, suddenly, just out of the blue, you're surrounded by vicious dogs. They're snapping, snarling, barking around your legs, your ankles, and it is terrifying. We've all been there. It is terrifying. And the question on your mind is, where's the owner? Can't the owner call them off? I hope they're on a leash. Please tell me they're on a leash. As Job suffers, his greatest and deepest fear is that Satan is not on a leash. That's his fear. Satan has unrestrained access, unlimited access to him. He, he, we are a fly on the wall. Job wasn't a fly on the wall. He didn't know anything about the discussion between Satan and God. We are privy to that, but he wasn't. We know that Satan is on a leash. We know that God in his inscrutable sovereignty has given Satan a most terrible permission but not one millimetre more. We know that, but Job doesn't know that. Is evil on a leash or not? It means, Job came to that knowledge later on, it means that if we suffer, or you're sitting with someone who's suffering, we can have absolute confidence that though evil is terrible, though evil can be terrifying, though it can be agonizing, though it can be excruciating, we know that Satan is on a leash. We know that evil is on a leash. It cannot go one fraction further than God has allowed it. As I've said before, God doesn't answer all our questions. He doesn't have to. He is God. But he tells us, I am God and I am trustworthy. Trust me. Comment number two. What we have here is often called the mystery of evil. The technical word is theodicy. You can Google it. The question is, how can you believe in an all-loving, all-powerful God when there is evil? And make no mistake, Job 1 and 2 is evil. Now, some try to get around that, so they argue that God is certainly all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. So Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and he argues that God is all-loving, but he is not all-powerful. So God's doing his best. You can't blame him if he doesn't manage to get everything right. Or others may argue that God is like a chess grandmaster who takes on a room full of amateur chess players. And almost always he wins, but once in a while, an amateur wins. Well, the Bible allows us no such idea at all. God is utterly sovereign. Satan cannot touch a single hair on the back of a camel, Job's camels, not a single hair unless God has given him permission. Satan has been given certain permissions, no more and no less. Remember Martin Luther's famous quote that Satan is God's Satan. Job gets to the point that we all get. We want answers, we want explanations. And that carries on with Job up to chapter 38. In chapter 38, God appears on the stage. Finally, Job is ready. He's gone he I've got some questions for you. well when he appears before God God doesn't answer a single one of his questions, not one. no in fact God asked job questions tough questions, hard questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Have you commanded the morning? since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place have have the gates of death been revealed to you have you seen the gates of deep darkness do you know whose womb the ice came from do you know who has given birth to the frost of heaven As human beings, God has allowed us to experience three dimensions, perhaps four if you include time. But God doesn't allow us to see five dimensions, or ten, or a hundred. That belongs to the eternal purposes of God. That belongs to the inscrutable sovereignty of God. That belongs to the mysteries and paradoxes of God. You see, we want everything explained. We want answers to all our questions. And God says, I don't need you. I am God. In fact, I'll be wasting my time. Because you'll never understand 5D. Or 10D. Or 100D. You don't have the categories. You don't have the terminology. You don't have the worldviews. You don't have the vocabulary. I'm asking you to trust me because I'm God. And I am trustworthy. You see, even the mystery of evil is God's mystery of evil. Strangely, when God doesn't answer Job's questions, he merely presents himself to Job. Job is comforted, Job is satisfied. You see, the mysteries of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Chesterton said that man is only satisfied with paradox when it is God's paradox. All you need to know, Job, is that I am God. And you have no idea what 10D is or 100D. Comment number three. If you believe in the health and wealth gospel, I really would advise you to stop reading the book of Job. And probably the rest of the Bible. Uh, because you remember, God gave a, gave a reference to Satan. Satan wanted a reference. God gave a reference to Satan about Job. He's upright, he's blameless, he turns from evil, and he fears God. So you would think to yourself, well, yes, the ideal candidate for the health and wealth gospel. Well, it's not like that, because chapter 1, he loses all his wealth... In chapter 2, he loses all his health. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) notice verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. He's struck with dreadful sores and unknown disease from head to foot. So much for the health and wealth gospel. I think an interesting exercise would be to Google. Joel Osteen, TB Joshua, Google them on what they preach about Job. What they preach about the suffering of Christians. What they preach about the persecution of Christians. What they preach about, Christians suffering for their faith, Christians being tested for their faith, Christians being tested by fire. How often do they actually preach about the sufferings of Christ or the cross of Christ or the substitutionary atonement of Christ? I would think it's very rare at best. It's not part of their gospel. They better not teach Job. I mean, what are they going to say? Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, keep your place in Job. Hebrews 11 is the great New Testament chapter on faith, which is really what God is asking Job to do, to trust him. Hebrews 11, the definition of faith is given in verse 1. Notice there, have you got it there? Hebrews 11. After the T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Hebrews. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is a hope, but it's a certain hope. It's a sure hope. It is dead certain, but it's future. Now, we've all read in Hebrews or the Old Testament, the first half of Hebrews. The faith of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, of Moses. They are epic stories, epic narratives, epic heroes, epic victories. But I don't think we often read the second half of Hebrews 11. And I suspect the reason is that like the book of Job, it's terrifying. It's very unsettling. Because here are men and women of faith. And look what happens to them. Hebrews 11, verse 35 Some were tortured. He's talking about men and women of faith. Great faith. These are the heroes of faith. What happened to them? Well, some of them were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I mean, it's hard to imagine. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Yeah, men and women of great faith, and it didn't end well. Not on this earth. It didn't end well. Perhaps one of the unnamed heroes was Job, of whom the world was not worthy. You see, I don't think Satan is able to understand these unnamed heroes. You see, they have learnt verse 13. Notice there, chapter 11, verse 13. They have learnt. these all died in faith, not, have, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 16, they learnt and Satan couldn't understand it. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. And it's not Jerusalem or Rome or Mecca. It's a heavenly city. See, I don't think Satan can understand that. That many of God's promises are future only in the next world. But these men and women of faith have learned to trust in God alone. They've learned to trust that God is God and that His promises will be fulfilled even if they are not fulfilled in this world. They have learned that. They have learned that their city is not an earthly city, it's a heavenly city. They have learned to trust God in the dark. In the pitch dark, which is precisely where some of you may be this morning, online or here in the auditorium. Right now, you have to trust God in the dark, in the pitch dark, because you are living with a mystery of evil. But remember, it is God's mystery of evil. Remember that we are strangers, exiles on earth. Remember that this country, this world is not our home. We have another country. We do not belong here, folks. That's why we so often feel out of sorts in this world. Often we just so fed up. We just want to get out. Because we actually don't belong here. And we know that. And that's the mark of a Christian of faith. And Satan does not understand that. We don't have time. Look at Job's wife. Verse 9 and 10, back to Job. We're nearly done. Job chapter 2, verse 9, Then then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I've often thought rather unkindly that Job lost everything except the one thing he should have lost. <laughs> On the one hand, to be kind, it can be agonising living as a spouse, a parent, a friend near to someone you love who is suffering. To be kind. It can sometimes be worse, especially when it's a child. On the other hand, to, to be truthful. She does become the mouthpiece of Satan. It's Satan's temptation, isn't it? Curse God and die. Thankfully, Job refuses to do so. And he says, Shall we, remem- shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Remember that. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Before I close, notice verse 11 and 12, Job's friends come to comfort him, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. The next 34 chapters, you have their speeches and Job's speeches. And as we'll see from next week, probably the greatest help they were to Job was in chapter 2. They kept silent for seven days and seven nights. Sometimes we should shut our mouths. Let me close with a question. Does Satan attack Christians today? Three points. First thing to say that Job is an extreme book. It is not, Job is not every man. He's not every believer. Job is a sketch of the gospel. He's a draft of the cross. He's a shadow of Jesus. Second thing to say, that Satan is alive and well. He is still intent on destroying any and every believer. So Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're in a battle, and as I said before, we are actually the battleground. Third thing, what has changed since Job 1 and 2 is the death and resurrection of Christ. That is after Job. Colossians 2 verse 15. Paul tells us that in the cross of Christ, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to shame and triumphing over them. We live after the death and resurrection of Christ. Satan, Satan's death is certain, but he's still in his death throes. So beware. But his death is certain. And Satan can no longer appear before God in his throne room. He has been thrown down from heaven, from the heavenlies. He has been disarmed. He can no longer accuse us before God. He can not tempt us. So he still wanders to and fro, up and down, tempting God's people. But he can no longer, as in Job chapter 1 and 2, accuse us before God because he's been thrown from heaven. His death is certain, but he's still in his death throes. The only safety I can give you From Satan and from the legions of evil forces at his disposal. And let us not minimize them. The only safety you have is to be in Christ. There is no other safety. There is no other safety. If you are not in Christ. If you have not trusted in Christ. You are exposed. There is no defense. And Satan is superhuman. The only escape, the only protection, and it's a great protection, it's a magnificent protection, is to be in Christ. Then Satan and evil is on a leash. If you are not in Christ, you're on your own. Wouldn't today be a good day to finally bow the knee say, Oh Lord, Will you rescue me? Will you save me? Will you make me a Christian? Let's pray. Father, there may be someone here this morning in the auditorium or online church at home who does want to cry that to you right now. Oh God, will you have mercy on me? Will you rescue me? And we thank you, Father, that when we call upon you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. And then, Lord, I pray for those in our number who may be where Job was in chapter one and two in the depth, depth of depression. Oh, Lord, will you comfort them? Will you be close to them? Will you help them to pray chapter three? And then to look at you in chapter 38 to the end. And find their comfort in the mysteries of God. Oh Lord, will you work amongst us, we pray. And go with us into this week for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, once again it's been... Great to have you here with us this morning online at the church. We'll be back in Job next week, so keep reading through the book of Job. There's that great book by Christopher Ashe called Out of the Storm. It's a wonderful book to get and to read and to help you in your walk and your struggles with, with suffering and with evil. God
0: bless you. Have a good week.